Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life by C.S. Lewis Chapter 10, Fortune's Smile Part 1, Epigraph The fields, the floods, the heavens, with one consent, did seem to laugh on me and favor mine intent. Spencer At the same time that I exchanged Wyvern for Bookham, I also exchanged my brother for Arthur as my chief companion. My brother, as you know, was serving in France. From 1914 to 1916, which is the Bookham period, he becomes a figure that at rare intervals appears unpredicted on leave, in all the glory of a young officer, with what then seemed unlimited wealth at his command, and whisks me off to Ireland. Luxuries hitherto unknown to me, such as first-class railway carriages and sleeping cars, glorify these journeys. You will understand that I have been crossing the Irish Sea six times a year since I was nine. My brother's leaves now often added journeys extraordinary. That is why my memory is stored with ship-side images to a degree unusual for such an untraveled man. I have only to close my eyes to see if I choose, and sometimes whether I choose or no, the phosphorescence of a ship's wash, the mast unmoving against the stars, though the water is rushing past us, the long salmon-covered rifts of dawn or sunset on the horizon of cold gray-green water, or the astonishing behavior of land as you approach it, the promontories that walk out to meet you, the complex movements and final disappearance of the mountains further inland. These leaves were, of course, a great delight. The strains that had been developing, thanks to Wyvern, before my brother went to France were forgotten. There was a tacit determination on both sides to revive, for the short time allowed us, the classic period of our boyhood. As my brother was in the RASC, which in those days was reckoned a safe place to be, we did not feel that degree of anxiety about him which most families were suffering at this time. There may have been more anxiety in the unconscious than came out in fully waking thought. That, at least, would explain an experience I had, certainly once and perhaps more often. Not a belief, nor quite a dream, but an impression, a mental image, a haunting, which on a bitter night at Bookham represented my brother hanging about the garden and calling, or rather trying to call, but as in Virgil's hell, inceptus clamor frustrator hiantum. A bat's cry is all that comes. There hung over this image an atmosphere which I dislike as much as any I ever breathed, a blend of the macabre and the weakly, wretchedly, hopelessly pathetic, the dreary miasma of the pagan Hades. Though my friendship with Arthur began from an identity of taste on a particular point, we were sufficiently different to help one another. His home life was almost the opposite of mine. His parents were members of the Plymouth Brothers, and he was the youngest of a large family. His home, nevertheless, was almost as silent as ours was noisy. He was at this time working in the business of one of his brothers, but his health was delicate, and after an illness or two he was withdrawn from it. He was a man of more than one talent, a pianist, and, in hope, a composer and also a painter. One of our earliest schemes was that he should make an operatic score for Loki Bound, a project which, of course, after an extremely short and happy life, 
died a painless death. In literature, he influenced me more, or more permanently, than I did him. His great defect was that he cared very little for verse. Something I did to mend this, but less than I wished. He, on the other hand, side by side with his love for myth and marvel, which I fully shared, had another taste which I lacked till I met him, and with which, to my great good, he infected me for life. This was the taste for what he called the good, solid, old books, the classic English novelists. It is astonishing how I had avoided them before I met Arthur. I had been persuaded by my father to read The Newcombs when I was rather too young for it, and never tried Thackeray again until I was at Oxford. He is still antipathetic to me, not because he preaches, but because he preaches badly. Dickens I looked upon with a feeling of horror, engendered by long poring over the illustrations before I had learned to read. I still think them depraved. Here, as in Walt Disney, it is not the ugliness of the ugly figures, but the simpering dolls intended for our sympathy which really betray the secret, not that Walt Disney is not far superior to the illustrators of Dickens. Of Scott, I knew only a few of the medieval, that is, the weakest, novels. Under Arthur's influence, I read at this time all the best Waverleys, all the Brontes, and all the Jane Austens. They provided an admirable complement to my more fantastic reading, and each was the more enjoyed for its contrast to the other. The very qualities which had previously deterred me from such books, Arthur taught me to see as their charm. What I would have called their stodginess, or ordinariness, he called homeliness, a key word in his imagination. He did not mean merely domesticity, though that came into it. He meant the rooted quality which attaches them to all our simple experiences, to weather, food, the family, the neighborhood. He could get endless enjoyment out of the opening sentence of Jane Eyre, or that other opening sentence in one of Hans Andersen's stories, How It Did Rain, To Be Sure. The mere word Beck in the Brontes was a feast to him, and so were the schoolroom and kitchen scenes. This love of the homely was not confined to literature. He looked for it in out-of-door scenes as well, and taught me to do the same. Hitherto my feelings for nature had been too narrowly romantic. I attended almost entirely to what I thought awe-inspiring, or wild, or eerie, and above all, to distance. Hence mountains and clouds were my especial delight. The sky was, and still is, to me one of the principal elements in any landscape, and long before I had seen them all named and sorted out in modern painters, I was very attentive to the different qualities and different heights of the cirrus, the cumulus, and the rain cloud. As for the earth, the country I grew up in had everything to encourage a romantic bent, had indeed done so ever since I first looked at the unattainable green hills through the nursery window. For the reader who knows those parts, it will be enough to say that my main haunt was the Holywood Hills. The irregular polygon you would have described if you drew a line from Stormont to Comber, from Comber to Newtonards, from Newtonards to Scrabo, from Scrabo to Craganlet, from Craganlet to Holywood, and thence through Knocknagani back to Stormont. How to suggest it all to a foreigner I hardly know. First of all, it is by southern English standards bleak. The woods, for we have a few, are of small trees rowan and birch and small fir. The fields are small, divided by ditches with ragged sea-nipped hedges on top of them. There is a good deal of gorse and many outcroppings of rock. 
Small abandoned quarries filled with cold-looking water are surprisingly numerous. There is nearly always a wind whistling through the grass. When you see a man plowing, there will be gulls following him and pecking at the furrow. There are no field paths or rights of way, but that does not matter for everyone knows you. Or if they do not know you, they know your kind and understand that you will shut gates and not walk over crops. Mushrooms are still felt to be common property, like the air. The soil has none of the rich chocolate or ochre you find in parts of England. It is pale, what Dyson calls the ancient bitter earth. But the grass is soft, rich, and sweet, and the cottages, always whitewashed and single-storied and roofed with blue slate, light up the whole landscape. Although these hills are not very high, the expanse seen from them is huge and various. Stand at the northeastern extremity where the slopes go steeply down to Holywood. Beneath you is the whole expanse of the loch. The Antrim coast twists sharply to the north and out of sight. Green and humble in comparison, down curves away southward. Between the two, the loch merges into the sea. And if you look carefully on a good day, you can even see Scotland, phantom-like, on the horizon. Now come further to the south and west. Take your stand at the isolated cottage which is visible from my father's house and overlooks our whole suburb, and which everyone calls the shepherd's hut, though we are not really a shepherd country. You're still looking down on the loch, but its mouth and the sea are now hidden by the shoulder you have just come from, and it might, for all you see, be a landlocked lake. And here we come to one of those great contrasts which have bitten deeply into my mind, Niflheim and Asgard, Britain and Loge, Handramit and Harandra, air and ether, the low world and the high. Your horizon from here is the Antrim Mountains, probably a uniform mass of grayish blue, though if it is a sunny day you may just trace on the cave hill the distinction between the green slopes that climb two-thirds of the way to the summit and the cliff wall that perpendicularly accomplishes the rest. That is one beauty, and here where you stand is another, quite different, and even more dearly loved. Sunlight and grass and dew, crowing cocks and gaggling ducks. In between them, on the flat floor of the valley, at your feet, a forest of factory chimneys, gantries, and giant cranes rising out of a welter of mist lies Belfast. Noises come up from it continually, whining and screeching of trams, clatter of horse traffic on uneven sets, and, dominating all else, the continual throb and stammer of the great shipyards. And because we have heard this all our lives, it does not, for us, violate the peace of the hilltop. Rather, it emphasizes it, enriches the contrast, sharpens the dualism. Down in that smoke and stir is the hated office to which Arthur, less fortunate than I, must return tomorrow, for it is only one of his rare holidays that allows us to stand here together on a weekday morning. And down there, too, are the barefoot old women, the drunken men stumbling in and out of the spirit grocers, Ireland's horrible substitute for the kindly English pub, the straining, overdriven horses, the hard-faced rich women, all the world which Alberich created when he cursed love and twisted the gold into a ring. Now step a little way, only two fields and across a lane and up to the top of the bank on the far side, and you will see, looking south with a little east in it, a different world. And having seen it, blame me if you can for being a romantic, for here is the thing itself, utterly irresistible, the way to the world's end, the land of longing, 
the breaking and blessing of hearts. You are looking across what may be called, in a certain sense, the plain of down, and seeing beyond it the mourned mountains. It was Kay, that is, Cousin Quartus' second daughter, the Valkyrie, who first expounded to me what this plain of down is really like. Here is the recipe for imagining it. Take a number of medium-sized potatoes and lay them down, one layer of them only, in a flat-bottomed tin basin. Now shake loose earth over them till the potatoes themselves, but not the shape of them, is hidden. And, of course, the crevices between them will now be depressions of earth. Now magnify the whole thing till those crevices are large enough to conceal each its stream and its huddle of trees. And then, for coloring, change your brown earth into the checkered pattern of fields, always small fields, a couple of acres each, with all their normal variety of crop, grass, and plow. You have now got a picture of the plain of down, which is a plain only in this sense, that if you were a very large giant, you would regard it as level, but very ill to walk on, like cobbles. And now remember that every cottage is white. The whole expanse laughs with these little white dots. It is like nothing so much as the assembly of white foam caps when a fresh breeze is on a summer sea. And the roads are white, too. There is no tarmac yet. And because the whole country is a turbulent democracy of little hills, these roads shoot in every direction disappearing and reappearing. But you must not spread over this landscape your hard English sunlight. Make it paler. Make it softer. Blur the edges of the white cumuli. Cover it with watery gleams, deepening it, making all unsubstantial. And beyond all this, so remote that they seem fantastically abrupt, at the very limit of your vision, imagine the mountains. They are no stragglers. They are steep and compact and pointed and toothed and jagged. They seem to have nothing to do with the little hills and cottages that divide you from them. And sometimes they are blue, sometimes violet, but quite often they look transparent, as if huge sheets of gauze had been cut out into mountainous shapes and hung up there, so that you could see through them the light of the invisible sea at their backs. I number it among my blessings that my father had no car, while yet most of my friends had, and sometimes took me for a drive. This meant that all these distant objects could be visited just enough to clothe them with memories and not impossible desires, while yet they remained ordinarily as inaccessible as the moon. The deadly power of rushing about wherever I pleased had not been given me. I measured distances by the standard of man, man walking on his two feet, not by the standard of the internal combustion engine. I had not been allowed to deflower the very idea of distance. In return, I possessed infinite riches in what would have been to motorists a little room. The truest and most horrible claim made for modern transport is that it annihilates space. It does. It annihilates one of the most glorious gifts we have been given. It is a vile inflation which lowers the value of distance so that a modern boy travels a hundred miles with less sense of liberation and pilgrimage and adventure than his grandfather got from traveling ten. Of course, if a man hates space and wants it to be annihilated, that is another matter. Why not creep into his coffin at once? There is little enough space there. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. 
And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.